here we are, ladies and gentlemen. It's the year 2021. All of the great Saturday Night Live movies have come and gone. All of the great musicals have come and gone. Where shall we turn to for our mirth? Where shall we turn to for the music? Where shall we turn to for the mayhem? The answer is simple. We must direct our attention backwards. We must look to those master blues men, those brothers in blues, Juliet Jake and Elwood Blues. We must look to the Blues Brothers. know what that sound means hello everyone welcome back to captain jack's arm bar emporium we are coming into the home stretch of our mini series about the dawn of snl the first five years of the greatest cast in the history of saturday night live don't at me we've proved it over and over again at this point in the timeline we have gotten through four seasons we are we are headed into the end but we're not quite there yet when we last left our group of budding superstars. Two defections happened at the end of season four. Two very big pieces of the puzzle left. John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. Now, why did they leave? It's for a very important reason. They left to make the greatest SNL movie of all time. To this day, 41 years later, there is yet to be a movie that tops it. Not Wayne's World, not Coneheads, not It's Pat, not The Ladies' Man, nothing touches this movie. What's the movie that's so big that every studio in Hollywood bid for it? And Universal got the rights, and then ended up paying for the most expensive comedy ever made, only to make $115 million back purely in domestic box office in 1980 dollars that's a almost 400 million in today's dollars everybody this is a gigantic movie we are talking about the adventures of Julia jake and elwood blues the blues brothers and i cannot talk about this alone i have a very special guest those of you that are longtime listeners of the show are going to be very familiar we're welcoming back the programmer for Alamo Draft House in Phoenix, Lauren Knight has returned to join us to talk about this. Hello, Jack. Happy to be here. I am thrilled you are here. I have left out a very important detail for everybody up to this point. Yes. I revealed this secret episode at the end of our season four episode. Um, Lemmy Adam and I uh, told everybody that, surprise, we have an interlude between season four and five. So important that it deserved its own episode. And that you were going to be on it. What I neglected to tell everyone until right now <laughs> is up until about seven or eight weeks ago, you had never seen the Blues Brothers. I had not. No, I had gone 35, almost 36 years. I checked my letterbox because I'm on letterbox. So I record everything. I watched the Blues Brothers for the very first time because of you, actually, uh, the day before my 36th birthday or the night before. So like I basically went 36 years without having ever seen the Blues Brothers, despite hosting screenings of it at Alamo, <laughs> our secret. So, I have never actually seen it. 
that is honestly mind blowing to me. When you first told me that, I, I'm not even gonna lie. And this, I don't mean this to sound like peak mediocre thirty something guy, but I had to take a seat for a minute. <laughs> I physically sat down for a moment and collected myself because the last thing I want to do is beat that gatekeepy guy that's going to be like, well, you've never seen feeling blank, rah, 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 rah. and then we're not about that here on Captain Jack's Armbar Emporium. So we decided to turn this into an opportunity, and I said, this is good. This This can be something. And I said, if you watch this, please come on the show Let's do, let's tack in an extra episode to our SNL miniseries and talk about this. Because I'd already, it's so gigantic, I'd already been kicking around that idea. But for to, to meet the rare and special unicorn that had just seen the Blues Brothers for the very first time, such as yourself, was just too good of an opportunity to pass up. I, I just, I was like, oh man. I love this movie so much. The joy of someone else seeing it for the first time and then coming onto my show to talk about it is just, that's the kind of stuff you hope for. What's really weird, though, too, is my parents would quote the movie to me, like, as a kid growing up. Like, if there would be a reference to the blues, but, like, I'm just, like, I'm on a mission, like, we're on a mission from God. Like, I grew up hearing quotes and like songs and stuff but for some reason like i guess because the movie is rather surprisingly rated r that i think like that was why i also missed it because i wasn't like someone who rebelled and also like it's not like i could go to blockbuster video or hollywood video when i was 13 and like re like i just i don't know it's so weird i grew up with references and i knew who the blues brothers were but like <laughs> Never bothered to have the connection, like, made. <laughs> and that's so interesting. I think you, you, you stumbled onto something there, is because this became so ubiquitous in pop culture, and this ended up being such a gigantic hit that, you know, without even seeing the movie, people know things like, we're on a mission from God, or you turn to somebody and go, I can't tell you how many times in my life I've gone, we're putting the band back together. When you are surrounded by this and you know the iconography of something and you hear all these things, but at the end of the day, the way pop culture is right now and the way pop culture fandom is, you eventually get to a point when you're so far removed from it, you're like, is there ever going to be a good time for me to speak up and say I've never actually seen this thing? You're not the only person that's had that reaction, though, because I, if I tell someone that, they usually can't believe it just because I also just watch movies all the time, but because I've hosted screenings of this movie. Yeah. Right. So like, it's just, it's weird. Cause there wasn't a way to watch old SNL episodes as a kid. Like there was no streaming. True. There was no YouTube. Like they, there weren't, there were reruns, but I don't know really what they did with that when it came time to like playing SNL. Like you couldn't locate these old SNL episodes until the advent of the internet, really. So I was born after Belushi had even died. So, like, mm -hmm. all I knew was just references from my parents or, like, clips on, you know, TV or a retrospective or something like that. So
So I never, I never had a connection with the show. So the then. interesting, you you stumbled on onto a point that we were slowly starting to introduce in the other episodes, and and we'll talk about this more when we get to the fifth and final season. Um, is the fact that the rights to the reruns are controlled by Broadway Video. Broadway Video is owned by Lorne Michaels. So when reruns were the only way you could really watch these things in the 90s, it was, you know, it was very strictly controlled as far as the edits and even the episodes that were made available and in circulation, as limited as it was. So you would not be alone as far as people who were like, well, I didn't get to see that until much later. And even on Peacock, the episodes that are the most intact are the episodes from the first five seasons. The crazy amounts of editing kick in from season six all the way up through the present. Okay. So out of 40, so out of like 46 seasons, really only the first five are, have little to no edits. That's really interesting. Cause I know music rights are an issue later on. Yes. Um, but I also, there was this weird thing for me, like being a kid where, and it's going to sound hypocritical because like my dad, I was, my dad, I say is responsible for showing me the big three. He showed me Back to the Future, Indiana Jones and Star Wars, right? He showed me those three trilogies. Like he showed me and he showed me Ghostbusters, things like that. But I had this weird thing as a kid where I was like boy movies versus girl movies. And that's not a huh. result of my parents, like at all. My mom loved Dirty Dancing, but she also loved Die Hard. Like it had nothing to do with, you know, like gender. Like obviously there were gender roles because it was the 80s and 90s and like obviously. But like my dad, like I said, showed me Back to the Future and Indiana Jones. And those are movies that usually are like boy movies, right? Like guy movies. He showed me Bridge on the River Kwai. Like so, it, but f- for some reason, like in my head, it was like I never had an interest in the Blues Brothers. I didn't know who they were, quote unquote, and it was always just like, oh, that's for that's for boys. <laughs> so <laughs> like that that's so sense. wild to me. Put, <laughs> you know, as as kids of the '80s and '90s, I mean, that is that is something that is now kind of an antiquated notion, but it was prevalent at that time about media and toys and clothes and so many things that we've it's it's been a straight up yoda like we've been unlearning what we previously learned yeah so and and if it it weren't for like if it weren't my parents introducing me to a movie or me discovering it on my own somehow before i ever got a job at hollywood video like we're talking like tbs or tnt or whatever like then it wasn't Mm -hmm. on my radar it wasn't something that i really sought out and then like Sure, I should have rented it when I worked at Hollywood Video, right? Like that's when I was that's when I say I got my true film education despite going to college and taking all these film courses and stuff. But like mm-hmm. there was still this weird I don't know, this weird like I didn't have any interest because again, I didn't know who like I didn't understand the the meta like it was a meta concept, but it was also legit. Like they were actually a band. Like, I didn't know anything about the history of the Blues Brothers. Like, I just was used to, like, the Coneheads movie, which I did see in theaters, right? Like, that's a 90-minute movie of a sketch. So I did not actually know that the Blues Brothers movie was more than just, like, I, equi- I, I it was, like, wild and crazy guys to me. Like, I thought it was, like, a sketch <laughs> in movie. Fo- like, I didn't, it, I didn't understand 
Like, <laughs> I'm not making any you know, sense, but like. <laughs> no, you you really are because if you didn't live through that cultural moment and you came along after, it could be easy to make that you know to make that assumption just because of the way all the other SNL movies wound yeah. up and the way they were made and things like that. The Blues Brothers really is an anomaly for several reasons. First of all, because it was something that did come fully formed, but maybe not so much as a sketch as a musical act to Saturday Night Live. And had, uh, as, as we discussed on previous episodes, it had started as a deal that happened at the after parties of the 505 Club, which was Dan Aykroyd's speakeasy in New York City, um, where he says they literally stored cash in the walls. <laughs> and it was about as old school as it gets. I fucking love Dan Aykroyd so much. Um, but, you know, both he and Belushi came to blues music at different times in their lives, but they united around this and they started becoming friends as they became more famous with all these people. Every band member in the movie is a fictionalized version of an actual person. Like Matt Guitar Murphy is Matt Guitar Murphy. Alan Rubin, Mr. Fabulous, is Alan Rubin. So this band is like 50% the sat original Saturday Night Live band that served under Howard Shore, who of course went on to become one of the biggest film composers of all yeah. time, has a crap load of Oscars now, uh, but started as the mu original music director on SNL. Um, okay, so I thought but, those guys were like yeah. the SNL band. Half of okay. them are. Uh, the the horn section specifically okay. are all so Blue Lou Marini and Mr. Fabulous and Bones Malone. You can see them on pretty much every episode of the first five years of okay. SNL. Um, now, interestingly enough, there was a contract dispute with NBC where they did not allow Paul Schaefer to be the keyboard player as he was in the Traveling Blues Brothers band. In the movie. Oh, I forgot about that guy. I forgot about Paul Schaefer because I only know him as was he Letterman? He well, he originally started on SNL and then took and then was also part of Late Night with okay. David Letterman over on NBC. And then when the huge fallout happened in the early '90s and Letterman got screwed out of the Tonight Show, he followed Dave and went with him to uh, when he did the the late show over at CBS. Okay. Yeah. That's how I'm most familiar with him. I always forget that Paul Schaefer has an SNL connection. He also was, uh, Perseus. Is that the guy with wings on his heels? Perseus in the animated movie, Hercules. <laughs> um, not Perseus. He was Hermes. Hermes. That's who he was. He was Hermes in the animated movie, Hercules. So that's also how I know Paul Schaefer. <laughs> that's really funny. That's really funny. That's, that's, that's what you associated uh, with. Yeah. But yeah, Paul Paul Schaefer is an integral part of some of the greatest SNL sketches of all time. He's in the King Tut sketch. Oh, I know that one. His uh, his um, impersonation of Don Kirshner, okay. the concert promoter, is all over the first few seasons of SNL. So, yeah, it was. That's really the only one drawback I can think of with this movie is the only thing missing is Paul. Well, who were the other guys and then? They, like Duck Dunn and. Well. That's the other half of the band, and that is a huge music thing. The Stax Volt house band is made up of those guys. So Steve Cropper and Donald Duck Dunn were the writers and main players for the Stax Records house band out of Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. So on all those Sam and Dave recordings and Isaac Hayes recordings and stuff like yeah. that, 
That's that's Steve and Donald writing and playing those. So when Sam and Dave are sing Soul Man and Sam goes, play it, Steve, and he plays the fucking guitar. OK, lick, he's he's talking to Steve. Crump. OK. So these are incredibly famous, like musicians, musicians who have written some of the greatest music of all time. So and it, it goes into the ethos of the Blues Brothers. Dan Aykroyd has stated that he wanted a band that was half New York R&B show band, half Memphis soul band. Okay. And that's what he got. He put those two halves together and they got this amazing R&B review. Um, of course, I don't want to leave out Matt Guitar Murphy, the the main guitar player for that band. Um, yeah, uh, Willie Too Big Hall, the drummer. Also part of that Stax Volt house band. Just the thing is, they got the best of the best as far as they really went out of their way to get like the musicians, musicians, the guys that maybe you would hear on hundreds of records, but not always see. But the business was changing because of Saturday Night Live and those guys in the band and were starting to, you know, they were on TV every week. And they were they were playing with all these musical guests and stuff like that. And then these halves came together, and they really hit a flashpoint. Uh, the end of season three was their first performance as the Blue Brother, Blues Brothers on SNL. Instant sensation. It also helps that they were, were the musical guests on arguably the greatest front-to-back SNL episode of all time. That's the episode with King Tut. That's the episode with Dancing in the Dark. That's the episode with another one of the Wild and Crazy Guy sketches. I mean, that that first half might be the best 45 minutes of television that show has ever produced. That is so strange. Because so. my, my dad especially would reference, he would like be in the kitchen and be like, King Tut. And he would like do that. Like, I grew up in that like 70s, <laughs> 80s reference SNL, but for some reason, like, was never shown... Um, like the movie or anything, but my dad was also someone who liked to fuck with me. I, he enjoyed it. And like, <laughs> my dad and I have a rocky relationship, but like he would say things. I remember in science, like learning science one day, he's like, I was really little, like six or eight or something. And he was like, you know that you're not really seeing me. You're seeing the light reflecting off of me. And I started crying because I thought that meant my dad wasn't there. And my mom oh was my yelling God. at my dad from, like, the other room. She's like, Charlie! Like, she's yelling. So I remember asking my dad, like, were the Blues Brothers, like, a band or a sketch? And he was like, they're both. And I couldn't comprehend that at a really young age. So, like, I just thought it was my dad fucking with me. <laughs> but, no, he was right. Because they were they were all these different things all at once. And it was a complete – and, yeah – at the time, in 1978, 1979, it was a totally foreign concept because it was breaking the fourth wall. This thing that was a sketch on television of this fictional band that showed up on SNL and blew the doors off and became an instant sensation where, you know, the front guys happened to be played by two of the most popular television stars in the entire country at the time um, became a life of its own. It's covered in the uh, the things we did last summer uh, special that played early on in season four um, that we covered on the previous episode, where it did mini movies of all the different uh, folks from the SNL cast and what they did during their off time after season three. And the portion about John and Danny covers the fact that they went on tour as the Blues Brothers after that, 
recorded a live album, and went to number one in America with it. See, and I didn't know that until last night to, to prep for this. Uh, there was a documentary that came out on Showtime last year simply called Belushi. And it's like about an hour and 50 minutes long. Um, and so I, I watched it in preparation for this because I doing like a deep dive into Blues Brothers, like I there's so much to read about, but I didn't know anything about Belushi the man, right? Um, so I watched it last night. It's on Showtime. I watched it through Hulu because I have Showtime through Hulu. So anyone listening, like you have access to this documentary if, if you have that. Um, and it opens... The documentary is told really interestingly. Apparently there was a, a biography that was released that was an oral history. Like there was a biography about John Belushi, but it was all done, or an article, and it was all done like with with interviews from other people, right? And then mm -hmm. it was compiled into the story. So basically these audio tapes were recorded sometime after, it says shortly after, but I don't know how long after, Belushi's death. Um, Carrie Fisher is being, is is heard on them. So it's definitely prior to you know, four or five years ago. Um, mm -hmm. But the whole documentary is only told through these audio tapes. There is no like, there is no like voiceover narration or, or anything like that. So like even Belushi's childhood is told through audio recordings of family friends, audio recordings of Jim Belushi, audio record. Like, so it was, that. it was really, really interesting, but it opens, sorry, long story long. It opens with the universal, Universal Amphitheater. Amphitheater tour. And that was when it hit me like, oh, these guys were like a real thing. Like mm -hmm. even now I was like, I was watching and I was like, oh, this is legit. Like this was actually a performance for like 7,000 people. And it was like legitimately music. It wasn't like a comedy music, yuck, 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 you know, kind of like tongue in cheek the thing. It was like a show that people bought tickets to. If there was comedy in it, it came from the fact they played it completely straight. Right. It wasn't like it a variety was pure show or dedication to the bit. Or like when Martin Short yes. and Steve Martin get together, it's clearly like a shtick, right? Like, Correct. no, this was like you paid to see the Blues Brothers, and that was you weren't paying to see Dan Aykroyd and and John Belushi. You were paying to see Correct. Jake and Elwood Blues perform a show. Yep, and it was it was a damn fine show because they took it seriously. And they got the the best R&B musicians possible. And, you know, that remained the band for decades. I mean, we're talking after John Belushi's passing. You know, it remained a thing. There are, there are House of Blues restaurants all over the world that have the caricature of Jake and Elwood on the wall. Oh. And, you know, this is, this is a huge... This became a huge cultural phenomenon that carries on to this day and is is recognizable in all four corners of the world, and which is to come all the way back to the original point, which is why I was like, oh, you have to be on this show and we have to talk about this because it only – I mean it already made sense to dig into this. So, I mean, and let's start at the very genesis of the movie. They come off of the Universal Amphitheater show and a couple of their tour dates. And it's filmed for the things we did last summer special. There's clips of it. Uh, the album is a gigantic hit. They do another um, spot as the musical guest on Saturday Night Live early in season four. Carrie Fisher is the host for that episode. Okay. 
Um, another great episode, one of my all-time favorites. And after that, the bidding war begins. And the ultimate winner is Universal Pictures gets the rights to do this movie. Now, interestingly enough, the biggest difference a lot of people point out versus all the other SNL movies, Lorne Michaels is not involved in the making of this movie. I did notice that, which I thought was extremely weird because you're not allowed to do anything outside of SNL without Daddy Lorne. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that after this movie and the giant bags of cash that it made, I think Lorne somewhere in his mind went, I will never let that happen again. Yeah, I don't think he knew what he had. This documentary, like, he's definitely an asshole. Like, everything everyone says about him is true. Like, even in these audio tapes, like, oh, yeah, like, the guy was a dick. But it's no, I mean, you know that he and John butted heads. Like, I'm sure that, like, mm. you know that how, going into your history of, of SNL that, like, he didn't even want to hire him. And Belushi took this, like, machismo stance where he was like, I will honor you with my presence on your show. And Lauren was like, nope, fuck it. Nope, don't want you. Like, Belushi was, like, playing it up. Like, I am better than you. And he hated TV and was like, I will do you the honor. That's what it is. I will do you the honor of being on Saturday night or whatever. And Lauren was like, no, I don't, I don't need you. And then later on, he did ultimately audition. Uh, it was a, it was a definite power struggle. Yeah. The line that stuck out in, uh, we, we often reference live from New York, which is the oral history of Saturday night live through the first 40 seasons, um, on throughout the miniseries. And the line that stuck out from Belushi is I can't watch my TV cause it's covered in spit. <laughs> <laughs> and because that's how little he thought of yeah. tv going into saturday night live he hated the medium he thought it was corny he wasn't wrong <laughs> um but yeah you know and and for all his faults john ended up being a brilliant comedic performer and there was a lot of push and pull there um john was also got very frustrated early on with how much the focus kind of drifted to chevy chase <laughs> through the first season. Of yeah, that. they talk about that in the documentary. Like, I'm Chevy Chase and you're not and stuff. Like, how that became a catchphrase in every, you know, magazine and news article. And it was like, he's Chevy Chase and you're not. How the rise of, like... And so he was very much upset because he was the star and the and the ringleader and the glue of uh, the National Lampoon, like, radio hour. Um, and so he was not used to not being that, but in all fairness, allegedly Chevy buttered up to Lorne and was actually in Lorne's office every day, like going over sketches and stuff. And John mm -hmm. reportedly couldn't be bothered. Like John was not like really in, like he, he didn't give his all, like, that's not fair to say he always gave his all when he performed. But what I mean is like Chevy struck up a relationship with Lauren and was constantly like giving notes and was constantly like involved. And John mm -hmm. was absolutely the opposite of that and was not involved in, 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 in any of, so it's not surprising that, you know, Lauren had was more focused on highlighting Chevy. Like that's, that's not a surprise. 
Yeah, and it's no mistake that when Chevy leaves about a third of the way through season two, John's stock skyrockets. Mm-hmm. Mean, meanwhile, while all of this is happening, Dan Aykroyd is the original glue guy of SNL. And we talk about how every generation has a glue guy. Most famously, Phil Hartman. The late, great Phil Hartman is considered like the ultimate glue guy in the history of SNL. I would argue that he's in competition with Dan Aykroyd for that. Because Dan Aykroyd could do so many things so well. The crazy, manic pitch man. Uh, to being a part of the Blues Brothers, to being one of the bees, to <laughs> just filling in anywhere you could possibly imagine Dan was there. And it underlined the fact that he was a great writer. So when the time came to write the Blues Brothers, however, he turns in this telephone book of a script. <laughs> which goes into the lore and the history of the Blues Brothers, and he talks about how the Bluesmobile has magical powers that are, like, bestowed upon it on the end. And you can see a little bit of this in the extended version of the movie, by the way. But they park it under a transistor for the L train. And and he always said in interviews that the insinuation was the Bluesmobile absorbed the energy (laughs) from the transistor for the L train, and that's how it was able to do the crazy shit that it could do as a car. Whereas John Landis was... Why don't we just show that it's a magic car and they'll buy that it's a magic car? (laughs) So, which was like one of the battles that they went back and forth on. John has great thing. John Landis has mostly great things to say about working on this movie. But he said that he definitely had to do extensive, not so much rewrites as whittling down this giant script to make it shootable. And um, side note, there is a book called uh, Scrapbook, uh, it's a coffee table kind of thing at, that came out at the time of the movie called Blues Brothers Private, which was supposed to be assembled by the, um, the penguin, the head nun of the orphanage. And it's supposed to be clippings and things about all the different characters in the movie. And essentially, it's cast off stuff from Dan Aykroyd's giant original script. Okay. And that kind of stuff went off and became that book. But what you see on the screen is the is extensive, like, whittling and rewriting and reshaping that Landis did. And he worked with Aykroyd on this, of course. But it definitely... It definitely was something where he was just bursting with these ideas. And has since done so, you know, most notably Ghostbusters had a very similar production process in the writing and got a mega script that ended up not looking much like the finished product on that either this was a little closer so they go into this and filming this movie and this is where it kind of links back to the belushi documentary you saw because i'm pretty sure they talked about uh, why dan nicknamed john america's guest yes because he wandered off like during, so here it's, we, we can't talk about the Blues Brothers and even the final season of SNL without talking about Belushi's drug use because mm-hmm. they both, that his drug use played a part in both his leaving the show, according to this documentary and the shooting of Blues Brothers. Um, apparently like he had gone on this massive bender uh, you know, during the season and he, he showed up on Saturday night, like, like almost catatonic 
like just not even like functioning. And there was a doc, like, I guess the doctor on set or what, what the, the doctor, they just said that like the doctor that was there. So there's probably like a, a, you know, a crew doctor or whatever said that like, uh, he told Lauren that if John went on, he, he, he looked at John and, and, and looked him over and stuff and said that if John went on, there was a 50, 50 chance that he would die. Uh, if he did the show that night and Lauren was so pissed that he was like, cool, I don't care. He's doing the show. Like I'm willing to take that chance. And Belushi did the show. You probably know what episode it is because unless they removed it, like he was terrible. Like he bombed. He He was. was not at all. He was so fucking high. I remember which episode this is. I don't have a specific number on hand, but but it's because the first time he shows up on camera, he's like fucking green. Okay, so that must that must have been he's, it. I mean, he did a lot of episodes high, but this one he was like so far gone. Yeah, he was, and it just ended mm. up being like he's leaving the show. They they did a press release, and it was like Belushi and Aykroyd are leaving the show to go film Blues Brothers. So he wasn't really, it seemed like, allowed back. <laughs> Which is interesting because, you know, uh, a year or two, you know, uh, I would say season six or season seven, he starts to come around again. Uh, he he was responsible for an infamous moment uh, later on in the show where he convinced Dick Ebersol ba- uh, to, uh, to book the punk rock band Fear which started a mosh pit that ended up like causing some pretty sizable damage to Studio 8H and they cut to commercial during it. So that's that's an infamous later SNL incident and that can be traced back to Belushi. That during his punk rock phase? Yes. When he was completely sure like just so addicted to drugs at that point, he gave away all of his blues albums to someone. And he was like, I hate, that he's like, correct. I fucking hate the blues now. And he ended up playing drums for some like punk rock band. And like, he just, but like, yeah. And I mean, I know we're jumping ahead, but I, for my timeline, this documentary, wow, has really helped me out. I would have been lost. So <laughs> this documentary yeah. was really helpful. Uh, okay. So then that would make sense then if it would be season six or seven. Okay. Yeah, because that's after he left the show. But where it ties back into this is there were delays. Yes. Uh, with the partying, um, there were times where there would be night shoots, and it was Aykroyd's task to go find him. And he would have to go door to door through these neighborhoods until he finally found the place where, you know, they would answer the door and they were like, yep, he's he's on the couch. And he would go found, find him passed out with a sandwich yeah. in his hand or something insane Cereal, like that. Like, yeah. And of course. <laughs> And of course, it's one of those things where they're filming in suburban Illinois, and it's one of the most famous men in America. So, are they, who are they to say no to this guy? And in he wanders, like a just a, a fucking Eddie Eddie Haskell writ large, you know, eating their food and passing out on their couch. And Aykroyd, you know, gets him up, gets him back, and then the the cycle starts all over again. Not to mention the fact that, as as I mentioned in the opening, this is one of the most expensive comedies ever shot, and a lot of it has to do with the sheer amount of cars they destroyed. Oh my god, I did. Uh, I wanted to look that up because, to be honest, I was super curious how they orchestrated on the streets of Chicago the cop, all the cop stuff in the last, you know, 20 minutes of the movie or whatever. Like that has to be one of the greatest 
car chases ever committed to film, in my opinion, is that in, final in all, opinion, as they descend upon Mayor Mayor Daly Plaza or whatever it is. Like, so an article came out in earlier in 2021, actually about a month ago, as we're recording this from Forbes. Uh, they completely destroyed 104 individual cars in the Blues Brothers. That's insane. Can I, I don't mean, even think you I don't think you quite see 104. So that must mean they probably had additional takes. I mean, maybe there were 104 cop cars in that final chase, but I mean, like, I have to imagine it did not go off perfectly. Like, I have to imagine that they had to have yelled cut reset get these crunched up cars out of here we got to do it again i you have i mean you i would think like there's because there are so many at least it's not continuous there are so many cuts but there's the the cutting across the median right like they're on the highway and then they cut mm -hmm. across the median on the exit and then the cop cars like roll down and then roll that like there has to like that probably didn't go quite perfectly there's got to be I, i'm curious how many takes just for the whole thing I, I will say that up until the Fast and Furious franchise came around, it held the record for the most cars destroyed. No way! Fast and Furious beat yeah. it? Oh, well, yeah. The whole franchise. Multiple movies of yeah, this. Yeah, the whole franchise. No, multiple individual movies of this ended up beating it later on. And also uh, that some of the Transformers movies are right up there, too. So, But at the time, this was such a massive undertaking, especially for a comedy. Nothing else quite was quite like it and, and even the involvement of cars in the first place plays into the the lore of you know that Aykroyd wrote into the script and the lore of Dan Aykroyd himself I mean his nickname was Motorhead and he's he's the man that for fun once drove non-stop from Los Angeles to New York in a little under three days they, with Belushi, right? They talked about that, like how they yes. would just sort of like get the hell out of town when they just need to like mm -hmm. get away and they would drive coast to coast in three days. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So he was notorious for being handy with all sorts of mechanical things. Uh, he famously um, solicited America for a uh, – a, carburetor part for his beloved harley davidson during the good nights of an episode of saturday night oh, wow. live um he the character of d-day in animal house was written for was was based on written for and originally was supposed to be played by dan Aykroyd, and then they had to get somebody else due to contractual obligations oh interesting i didn't know that yeah i have Harold, seen animal Harold house Ramis. So, okay yeah, Harold Ramis had initially intended D-Day to be played by Dan Aykroyd because it was based on Dan Aykroyd. And for those that are not familiar, D-Day is the guy that rides his motorcycle everywhere, <laughs> into buildings, upstairs, <laughs> doesn't matter. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. Uh, but so all of these things converge into what is turning into this crazy-ass movie, which is equal parts musical and action movie and comedy and social commentary it's just, <laughs> it's you know so uh, if there's one so if there's one thing i hate it's illinois nazis it still holds up. the nazi yeah. like yeah. yeah all like it's so good so 
not to get like to retell the movie or anything like that, but the movie starts with Jake getting out of prison. Elwood picks him up. They're off to the races. They go back to the orphanage where they're from. The Penguin tells them they're going to close the orphanage unless they can pay off the back taxes to the Cook County Assessor's Office. They then come up on, you know, their mentor, played by Cab Calloway, oh your favorite, I found out. I would have watched this movie so much, so much sooner if I had known that Cab Calloway was in it. That is amazing. Like, I love Cab Calloway, and no one told me he was in it until maybe a year or so ago, and then I obviously still didn't get around to watching it. But I was like, I didn't understand how he could be in it, because I thought he, he lived longer than I thought. I just assumed Cab Calloway had died, like, a long time ago. You know? (laughs) Like, it's hard to imagine Cab Calloway alive in 1980. (laughs) Right? Like... For for real, because <laughs> I just watched like stormy weather and I like so it it just didn't compute to, for me that he was like in it. Yeah, no, and it's so interesting that he's a part of this and that they requested for him to be part of this. And I mean, one of many that keep, keep in mind. Any a revival of interest in America in what's classically known as R&B and soul music can be directly attributed to this movie. Interesting. And we and we saw a career revival for most of the artists that were featured in this movie. Like they were kind of like swept to the side and had been for mm. quite some time. So, and I mean that not only applies to Cab Calloway, but we're talking like James Brown, Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, um, Sam and Dave, uh, just uh, the guy out plethora. the guy outside the music shop, the like John Lee yes, Hooker. Thank you. Yes, my dad had cassette tapes of him. <laughs> yeah, no, he's absolutely incredible. So it's just so important. Curtis, that's Cab Calloway's yeah. character. Yes, um, but he's as they say in the movie. Elwood says you're the only one that was good to us, and you. Blue Harp and played his Elmore James records down here. So he tells them to get their ass to church and they go over to the Triple Rock. Um, Jake has an epiphany after he sees the Reverend Cleopas James played by James Brown. Um, one, the, the first of several just incredible show-stopping sequences in this movie. The choreography, like I'm such a musical person. Like I love movie musicals and I love Broadway musicals and like, but they, the choreography and all of it uh, was just like, it blew my mind. Like, again, I hadn't seen really any clips of this movie outside of like the, the, the big quotes, right? Like yeah. I hadn't seen any of the musical performances, none of them. It was so all wild. new. Even the Blues Brothers performances, I hadn't seen, like I had seen in the past, like when they were on SNL, or but I hadn't actually seen their movie stuff performances yeah and and they build to that very smartly they're like well we have this amazing shit now now keep in mind the theatrical cut of this movie is like two hours and 18 that's the version i saw that's the one that's on the peacock yes correct 
Um, and also, for those of you that do want to watch this, you have multiple options. The theatrical version is on Peacock. Uh, there is an extended edition that is out there about that's about 10 or 11 minutes longer for to rent or own. That's where some of the magic car stuff comes in. Oh. Uh, you have an extended John Lee Hooker performance. Oh, man, I wish I had um, known. I watched the movie again yesterday, so it would be fresh in my awesome. head. So I, w- I would have watched the extended. Awesome. Check but, out. Yeah, so there's some... There's some extended car stuff in that too, but yeah, um, so many things and they build and they build to that point. Of course, Jake has an epiphany about how they're going to get the money and how they're going to save the orphanage. They were just going to steal it in the beginning. And that was when the penguin was like, (laughs) no, he was like, Um, yeah, he was like, yeah, we'll just just be right back. We'll just go get you $5,000 like right now. Yeah. She was like, no. And she's like, Yeah. And then he goes, well, it looks like you're in deep shit. Oh, my shit. gosh. And then she... That whole, like, ruler physical comedy thing had oh. me, like, in stitches. <laughs> well, that's the thing, is not only is this an amazing musical, and it has some of the best car car chase stuff you've ever seen in a movie, but it legitimately holds up as genuinely And fun. I think that's why I also was afraid to watch it, was I was afraid it was going to be so dated like in the way that planes trains and automobiles is now dated in the way that trading places is now dated mm-hmm. like i was worried that it was going to be be that and so that's also why i think i avoided it for so long understood this this movie this movie is the rare comedy hell it's the rare movie that it feels timeless it, it really it really does <laughs> I yeah. was shocked as I was watching it, like how. And what's crazy is I normally hate movies that have the the structure that the Blues Brothers has a lot of the time, like where everything goes wrong, kind of thing in this in the course of a night, sort of thing. Like mm-hmm. I can't stand a lot of those movies. Like I watched Scorsese's After Hours for the first time when it ended up on HBO Reich and everyone on Twitter was talking about it. I hated that movie. And there was a movie recently that I turned off, um, totally blanking on what it was called. Uh, it had Anthony Edwards and like, he thinks he get he overhears a phone or he gets a, a phone call where it says like the nuclear bomb is, is headed to LA. Like there's going to be nuclear war. And so he has like an hour to go find the girl that he accidentally stood up when his alarm didn't go off. I'm totally blanking on what it's called. It takes place in California. But, like, it's one of those things where, like, everything keeps going wrong in the course of a night sort of thing. And, like, that's sort of what the Blues Brothers is. Except they don't, they aren't really the cause of it. Like, it's everyone around them is causing their delay. They're Mm. not the ones, a few times they are. But it's mostly, like, Carrie Fisher causing their delay or like I don't know, but usually that type of structure annoys the shit out of me because I'm just like, it seems so simple to get out of that loop. It's like a time loop. It's like you're trapped in this never-ending destructive time loop, and it annoys the shit out of me most of the time. And let's be real, <laughs> it's the cops being cops that is the the source of the of the trouble in this movie. So, Elwood is going through an intersection as the light turns red. Yeah. Gets pulled over. They bust out the scmods, <laughs> which were new at that time in 1980. 
and they see that he has, and I quote, 116 outstanding parking tickets and 56 moving violations. So he knows that they know. And they're going to arrest him, impound the car, and their mission from God will be over before it begins. He takes off. He gets stuck in a parking lot. The mall. Jake's, yes, of the of the Dixie Square Mall. And... Jake says, get us out of this. And he goes, you want out? All right. <laughs> and then it the, the insanity kicks in at that moment. They have a car chase with a plethora of cops full through an actual mall. Yes, they bought a mall. They built it out and they destroyed it. I didn't it. know that part. I was curious if it was the first movie to sort of establish the, like, going ham in a vehicle through a mall thing. Cause you see that a lot now. Yes. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> and I didn't know like if that had been done before or if they sort of set the, like the thing of like driving through a mall, having a, having a motorcycle chase through a mall, having a bicycle chase through a mall. Like, cause you, you, you would see it so much in like the eighties and nineties. So yeah. I didn't know if this was the sort of the first instance where it came like this is the <laughs> genesis of That's that. Awesome. Absolutely correct. <laughs> and some of the biggest laughs in the movie, and I've seen this movie dozens <laughs> of times. If y'all haven't figured it out by now, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, the line that always gets me is, "Wow, this place has <laughs> everything." <laughs> or uh, new Oldsmobiles are out. Oldsmobiles are early this season, <laughs> and we're like, "Oh, yeah. Orange Julius." <laughs> Pier one imports. <laughs> it's this is a fucking incredible. Like and I don't know why that's ends... so funny. Like I don't know why it those lines. Like I was laughing. I don't it... know why they're funny though. Like why was that so funny? Because it's the kind of shit your fucking dad would like... be saying, looking out the window on a Sunday drive, and they're going a yeah. hundred miles an hour and dodging pedestrians. <laughs> yeah. That's why it's funny. <laughs> like, I was laughing so hard and just, like, it was great. So they they escape. One of the one of the greatest car... That, there's, like, three different things that could be the greatest car chase in any movie in this one. And this is the first <laughs> yeah. one. So they go to the flop house. They get to the flop house, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here's Carrie Fisher with a rocket launcher... And they are miraculously unharmed. They get up. They dust themselves off from the explosion. Go inside and fall asleep. <laughs> and all of a sudden, rocket number two is what wakes them up and miraculously saves them from being arrested by the cops. <laughs> by John Candy, no less. This is like parole okay. officer. <laughs> yes. Inspired. Anywhere you can put John Candy is A-okay by me. There's even in the smallest roles, he was a uh, master. Everyone, go watch more John I Candy today. I miss him so much. I remember Very much. being told when he died. Like, I, I miss him. Crushed. Yeah. Uh, my 11-year-old heart was just absolutely crushed. Yeah. Um, but no, it. this is... Amazing, uh, huge explosion. They again dust themselves off for the second time in about five or six minutes. Uh, we are in full gonzo mode at this point, and off they go to find the band. 
at least five of them are at a Holiday Inn lounge as Murph and the Magic Tones. What the fuck? They were they sounded <laughs> terrible. They, oh, they they sounded like Muzak, and I love that they gave Murph shit for that immediately. Oh. It was great, and they established that the reason that Jake had gone to prison in the first place is he stuck up a gas station to pay the band the money they owed him. <laughs> and he manages to convince everybody to come back, not unlike the real John Belushi, and off they go to find the rest of the band. Specifically, uh, another famous scene, they go to find Mr. Fabulous, who is at the Mater D at the Shea Paul. That's... <laughs> the girl! That... How much for the little girl? That the women. How much for your women? Was so uncomfortable. Like that's probably my least favorite scene in the whole movie. Like I okay. know some people into like I was so uncomfortable and I was like so mad. This guy's making an honest living as a maitre d in like the highest dollar value restaurant like in the chicago area presumably right like or at least in it like like mm. they were ruining this guy's like livelihood like i was so mad <laughs> they were being as a, as an entertainer <laughs> as an entertainer allow me to add a layer of depth to this I guarantee you Mr. Fabulous wasn't happy at that fucking job. That, yeah. He just needed a push. He needed a push. And there were Elwood and Jake to push him out of that cushy, gilded cage. You know what's... Okay, so we actually did the the Blues Brothers at Alamo a couple years ago as a beer dinner. And so, like, when Alamo does a beer dinner, it's basically like a feast. And it's like three or four courses all awesome. inspired by the film you're watching, right? So all the food is tied into the film in some way. And I think like the opening course, opening course is always some type of appetizer, like a salad or like a, like a bread thing or whatever. And the first item on the menu for that beer dinner was, uh, the soup is fucking $10 or something. Thank you so much. Like didn't understand this menu whatsoever. And that line happens with Mr. Fabulous. And I was, I was like, I was the Leonardo DiCaprio meme at my TV. I was like, oh, we had that on our menu. Incredible. <laughs> yep. And so, I mean, at this point, we're just going from set piece to set piece, pop culture moment to pop culture moment, because we are well and truly into this movie at this point. Uh, we encountered the American Nazi party of the Chicagoland Which area. Which was so random, though, too. Like. Yep. And so Elwood and Jake, on the correct side of history, I hate <laughs> Illinois Nazis, and they run those filthy motherfuckers <laughs> off a bridge. To which the the leader says, the leader gets the license plate and they goes, we're going to kill that son of a bitch. <laughs> so now we've established Mystery Woman, <laughs> Chicago PD... <laughs> And the Illinois Nazis <laughs> are all after them. And we're we're only like a third of the way through. <laughs> so we hit Maxwell Street, the famous Maxwell Street of Chicago. That's where we see John Lee Hooker, uh, which is amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, Sorry, he outside rolls. the diner. Yeah. Yep. And the diner is owned by Aretha Franklin. <laughs> as As once said by Marianne Faithful, 
if God had a voice, that voice would be Aretha Franklin's. I agree with that. <laughs> so interesting note about this. John Landis said this was the most difficult scene in the movie to shoot. And the reason for that tied to the artistry of Aretha herself. She never sang the same song twice. Ugh. Therefore, she had trouble matching playback. Oh, my God. Thank you. Because I was going to – I wrote that down. I have a little bit of notes in front of me. Like, I – that scene, aside from the maitre d' scene, just, like, making it so awkward. I – that scene is awful with, like, the dubbing. And I was like, there has to be a reason. That she's not even like some point you hear words and her mouth isn't even moving. Like I knew that there had to be something there because the rest of the movie, whether it's the singing or the acting or like the dialogue's great. The the vocals are great. Mm -hmm. But that Mm -hmm. one scene is so distracting to me. Yep. That's why. Uh, So it's also why one of the most underrated gags in the movie visually is in here. And people complained about it, but Landis said in an interview he did it on purpose. And that is where it cuts off the top of the head of Blue Lou Marini, and you just see a disembodied body dancing back and forth playing the saxophone on the top of the bar. Yeah. He said it was funny to him to picture a headless saxophone player. So that's why the way the shot was compositioned, the top of his, like, he's cut off from the neck up. And it was one of those things you don't really notice it until you notice it. And then you're like, huh, okay. <laughs> that's weird. The the mind of John Landis, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but, yeah, uh, this that's when they get Matt Guitar Murphy and Blue Lou Marini. They get him away from the... The soul food restaurant. Coke. I just keep they thinking of the Coke Aretha. line. <laughs> I'll have four fried chickens and a Coke. You want anything to drink with that? No. A Coke. <laughs> <laughs> Couple of honkies come in here looking like Hasidic diamond merchants. What did they order? Was one cracker ordered plain white, white toast. toast. Dry. Like <laughs> and the other one, he ordered four fried chickens and a Coke. That Jake shit, the Blues Brothers. Matt knows immediately who's there. It just was so funny because he wanted a Coke the whole time. And she's like, anything to drink? And I was like, he just had a Coke like four times. <laughs> right. But the order, I mean, I, I don't blame her. The order was so ridiculous. Yeah. So she needed clarification. <laughs> so off they go. And they go to my favorite musical number in the entire movie from here because they got to they gotta get new gear. Yes. Oh, my God. I don't know how too. they're going to get it with money. Me, too. It's my favorite one. So we go to the genius of soul because Ray's music is run by the Ray. <laughs> yeah. We encounter Ray Charles. <laughs> the Ray. <laughs> um, who, by the way, is funny as fuck in this. Uh, there's a great gag with a gun. Which I had, um, known, I had known about that gag before. And I don't know if it was from a clip or if it was something that my freaking parents kept talking about, about the Blues Brothers. Like, but when that happened, I was like, so that's where this movie, that's where it's from. So I had seen that gag somewhere before. It's so weird how this movie just has like been in my life in some weird way and still hadn't seen it. it Again, it speaks to its ubiquity in popular culture over the last 40 years since it came out. Because, like, the the clip here in a movie riddled with amazing musical sequences 
Ray Charles playing Shake Your Tail Feather with the Blues Brothers Band is especially incredible. Oh, my God. The choreography, like, it's the best song and, like, the best dancing for me, hands mm-hmm. down. Yeah, apparently they shot that in the Chicago winter, but had to film it for summer. <gasps> so there's behind-the-scenes footage of these poor dancers freezing their asses oh off. Oh, God. Just covered in layers between oh takes. Oh, my God. <laughs> But yeah, they shot Winter for Summer. Wow. Out in front of Ray's music. Wow. Yeah. But um, it comes off great. It's it's a centerpiece of the movie. And then off they go on the road for there trying to book their first gig. The mystery woman is back with an <laughs> M9A17 flamethrower after this. Shoots a telephone booth in the air and another great line. There's got to be about $10 worth of change here. (laughs) I used to piss off Star Wars fanboys by saying the best Carrie Fisher role of all time was this one. It's real. I I wish she was used. I know she was probably used just enough, but it's like we Mm. love her so much and we miss her so much that it's like, man, I wish she was in this more, you know? But then I think it, it probably would have lost something, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. like less is more. Yeah, because it builds up it builds up to that final joke, and we're, we're, we're fast approaching that. But again, just not hurt. Pockets full of quarters now and some glass. And off they go. They lie through their teeth to the band and say they're going to play at Bob's Country Bunker. <laughs> they show up. They take over the gig. Uh... They try to play their normal set, and we see why most country bars have chicken (laughs) wire. Wild. And I I love that the only country songs they know are the theme from Rawhide and Stand By Your Man. How perfect First of all, I love Stand By Your Man, so, like, I was all about it. But, like, the Rawhide song had me howling. Because, like, I know that song, you know, and but, like, it just was hilarious. <laughs> I wasn't expecting. And it was, but it was, like, legitimately well done. Like, move them out. Like, they're, like, and he gets the whip. Like, they were, like, harmonizing. And, like, it was, like, a legit musical composition. <laughs> and, again, it loops back to the genius of the act that is the Blues Brothers, the comedy stems from the fact that you expect it to be all haha, but they play this completely straight, and they can do this. Yeah. <laughs> this is a real band and a real thing, and it's it's insane. Um, of course they fuck it up. They drink so much beer that they make no money. They, in fact, owe money, <laughs> and they fucking take off. And in the meantime, the band they stole the gig from is now after them. So for those keeping score at home... Mystery Woman, Chicago PD, Illinois Nazis, and the Good Old Boys Band. <laughs> so they contact their slimeball manager. They need one big gig with everybody after them. They booked the Palace Hotel Ballroom in north of Chicago. This is where the famous loudspeaker they steal from the, the beach <laughs> yeah. gets tied to the top of the gar. <laughs> Hey there, you two girls. <laughs> you two girls. <laughs> I laugh at that. So wait, going back real quick, the scene with their manager in the spa has one of the greatest oh. like visual gags 
of the whole movie. Because it's tight on Elwood and Jake and the manager, and they finish the meeting, and all of a sudden it pulls wide, and the entire band has been with them the entire time. And he's like, okay, guys, time to go. (laughs) So good. Yes. It's just a really fucking funny movie, everybody. Um, So, yeah, and off they go. They improbably fill this place. Now, they have a hell of a hard time getting there because they run out of gas. Um, Elwood totally tries to pick up Twiggy on the yeah, way. Yeah, I didn't know that was her till the credits. Steals, you know, pockets her gas money, steals fireworks, steals an industrial, you know, steals things that he's going to use later in the movie. Um, and is like, hey, yo, if, you're, if your date doesn't uh, doesn't pan out, meet me at this motel. <laughs> like midnight or whatever. Which is just like straight up sleaze ball move, but but she considers it, which is wild. And then off they go. They sneak in because, of course, the club is absolutely surrounded by the Illinois State Police at this point. We have expanded to state instead of municipal police forces at this rate. And John Candy shows up and he's like, I've, I haven't heard these guys. Let's uh. That's a orange whip. Orange whip. Orange whip. Orange whip. We have four orange whips. <laughs> oh, John Candy. So they somehow sneak on stage with everybody and everybody at this point hunting for them. Well, you, they, there's the Cab Calloway because the crowd's getting restless. We almost missed your favorite part. Shame <laughs> on me. Please take it away from here. No. So they the band goes on ahead because they had gas. The band goes on ahead and... Like the crowd gets restless, and Cab Calloway goes, "Do you guys know Minnie the Moocher?" And then there's like some joke about like, "No, but I do know Julie from wherever." Or like he says some like line, and he's like, "No, the song Minnie the Moocher." And all of a sudden, like Cab Calloway like turns around, and they're in this like 1920s like jazz band like regalia. Like all the band members have tuxedos. Cab Calloway wears a white tux. They've got the, like, the bandstand type stuff where it's got the initials, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, all of a sudden you're sort of, like, transported. The audience is still modern-day dressed. They're still dressed in 1979-1980. But then you get to see mm-hmm. Cab Calloway's famous, like, dancing, uh, you know, that, like, was rotoscoped for the Betty Boop cartoons. Like, Cab Calloway did the Betty Boop cartoons 100%. and stuff. So, like, you get to see a classic, like, Cab Calloway performance with cutaways to them trying to sneak in, like parking the car under the under the tunnel, because like the cops are on the bridge, um, yep. and so he 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 buys them time. But it's really cool that they didn't that they changed their costumes for it. Like, so that was a specific production choice, and it was meant to be a love letter to Cab Calloway and his performances on film in the '30s. It looked it. Like, absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Another story about the production and the recording of the audio tracks beforehand. When Cab initially came in, he was so used to everybody asking him to do disco remixes and different versions of Minnie the Moocher that he was actually, when, when they told him they didn't want that and after a take and was like, we want the actual original Minnie the Moocher, he got a little upset. And then he came back and he fucking killed it on the next take. He was upset that he wasn't doing a remix? 
Well, I think because his bread and butter had been doing that for several years for people asking him for different variations on it. Interesting. You would think he would be so, like relieved like, that he gets to go back to his yeah. roots. Yeah, that's why that story had really stuck that's out so to me. But it ended up being yeah, it it was visually one of the coolest things in the movie. In a movie just littered with wild shit left, right and center. I, this really does stick out. It was out. just the only performance of the whole movie where you don't get to see the whole thing because it's used as like to stall for time, so then you're seeing the cutaways of Jake and Elwood. And so that was the only thing that like made me so sad. I was like, oh, I wish I could have seen like the whole Cab Calloway performance. Um, but you know, I understand. You gotta take liberties, you're telling the story. <laughs> Absolutely. Um that's where we get the famous movie of uh, the famous uh, clip of Jake and Elwood sneaking in in time to the beat. Yes. That has been used in everything since then. Um, So, yeah, they managed to sneak past the Nazis, the good old boys, the police. In they come. The the now iconic I Can't Turn You Loose uh, version that the Blues Brothers Band plays brings them on stage. And they go into this amazing version of Everybody Needs Somebody to Love. Yeah. Which came off just absolutely incredible. Um, with the crowd and everything like that. They go from there. They play Sweet Home Chicago. They dance off stage. They get a record deal. They get an advance on a record deal in the wings. They were like, you know, this money goes with us. This money goes to the band. We're out of here. Keep playing Stall for Time. And they hit the road. And they say, you know, it's 104 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas. Half a pack, a half of, cigarettes. pack of cigarettes. It's, it's dark. dark. We're wearing, we're wearing sunglasses. sunglasses. Hit it. <laughs> and off we go into the aforementioned car chase, which you correctly said is the wildest one Wait, in movie Harry history. Wait, Carrie Fisher shows up again. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the For the fourth and final time in this movie, and – just blasting M16 bullets at them. And finally, missing, Elwood missing turns. Them. Yes. Finally, Elwood turns to Jake and goes, Who is that? Yes. <laughs> and we find out this is the daughter of the boss of the Chicago. Uh. <laughs> and El and Jake stood her up at the altar comes up with every excuse in the book when the real reason was ostensibly he had gotten arrested for holding up the gas station and thus missed his own wedding. But um, and that apparently that is enough to get them out of that jam. They are off to the races. And then that's when the cars start really piling up. Yep. Literally. <laughs> yes. The, the fucking pile of, of police cars is still so astonishing to me, and it's unlike anything you see in any other movie. It really is. And I was thinking, so I never saw Blues Brothers 2000. It is on the Peacock. I never saw it, though. But don't they parody the cop car crash from Blues Brothers in Blues Brothers 2000? Kind of. Like, they do their own version. Like, doesn't it go on for, like, five minutes of just cars piling up in Blues Brothers? That's what I feel like there's a, like, a gif yeah. out there where it's, like, cop car after cop car after cop car. And it was, like, an in-joke in Blues Brothers 2000. 
Yeah, it doesn't work as well as the original. Actually, just the movie itself doesn't work as well as the original for multiple yeah. reasons. More, it was so, so many reasons it would probably double the length of this podcast if I was being completely No, and honest. that's fair, and I haven't watched it, but all I know is I thought they tried to, like, riff yeah. on the car they... chase, cop car crashes in Blues Brothers 2000 by making it almost Super Trooper level, or yeah. is it a Super Trooper thing that I'm thinking of that's that's riffing off of Blues no. Brothers? They, they made a point to wreck one more car than they had wrecked in the original Blues Brothers. So they wrecked 105 cars okay. for Blues Brothers 2000. So, no, it was a, it was certainly a choice. <laughs> okay. Because maybe it happens in Super Troopers, though, too, and I'm just conflating two different scenes. Because Super Troopers would totally be inspired by Blues Brothers. In, yeah, I would say in some ways that's a, that's a yeah. fair statement. It certainly takes cues from okay. that. Okay. Anyway, sorry. I just that's how my mind but was no. working. It was going to all these things during the car chase. The, the point is, anything we try to describe about this car chase is not going to do it justice. It's insane. I mean, the the car ending up wedged in the side of the semi. Yes. I don't know how they did that. I At this point, it's it's like magic to me. I don't know if I want to know. I want to, like, like, just want, like, now as a, as a grown adult who's, like, you know, works in the film industry, you know, like watching that movie now and seeing the car chases, like I'm fascinated with the logistics of stuff like that. Mm. Even in like the Fast and Furious movies, like I'm fascinated when you're like on an actual street and not like a movie set. Right. And you had to like shut down the streets of Chicago to do this. How in yeah. the world, like, how was your planning? How many stunt people, like, did you practice this in a in a parking lot somewhere first before, like, I am fascinated with how this all came together because everything had to be perfect because you didn't want to kill anybody. So there's only one of those questions I can answer and is a very specific part of this extended car chase. And it is the escape from and the death of the leaders of the Illinois Nazis. They actually did a test drop of a car from a helicopter. That looked okay. That looked real. I was like, oh shit! I think it they dropped was. the car. They did. <laughs> so they had to do a test drop because they had to see the logistics and the fucking flight pattern. Yeah. Yes, that's actually a thing I just said. <laughs> the flight pattern of this fucking gremlin and. Which is insane, but yeah, it was something that they tested, and then they had to shoot and splice in. Uh, again, another amazing joke. The uh, the Gruppenfuhrer turns to the boss and goes, I've, I've always, always loved, loved you. <laughs> <laughs> and they just shatter the pavement as they hit it with such force, and the boys fly over it as they pull to a stop in front of the Richard da J. Daly Center. Um, but yeah, the logistics of the chases underneath the L train and the cop cars. I mean, I feel like they shot this really early in the morning and they had to have over the course of a, an extended shoot because yeah, this, this has got to be one of the logistic miracles of modern film. Yeah. I like, it's fascinating. Cause even to practice that you're wasting cars. Now, presumably, mm. these obviously, these types of cop cars were a dime a dozen back then. But you hear stories yeah. now, like, you know, Evil Dead and Army of Darkness and, like, 
cars aren't, they don't make certain cars anymore, right? So every time you destroy a car from like 1940 something, like it's really hard to get another one of those cars again. (laughs) You got to put it back together from scratch essentially. (laughs) Yeah. I can't tell you how many times they put that Oldsmobile back together, but I think that also relates to Sam Raimi's levels of madness. But I think Army of Darkness So let's not discount that. Like, I think the car was done at that point. No, I think they reassembled it again and brought the classic back for the series. Oh, okay. Okay, maybe. But I'm just saying, like, I'm sure, like, it's now it's hard to imagine doing, like, when you see a date, like, a movie that takes place in another decade and you see classic cars that are getting, like, wrecked. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, man, that's one fewer of those now. (laughs) Exactly. So so many of those, were they Buicks or Oldsmobile? I forget what they called them when they were on In High Pursuit. They're like a black and white something, and I forget what the make was. Yeah, I feel like it might have been an Oldsmobile, but um, yeah, yeah, no, it it was an insane amount of cars. And, of course, then all all of a sudden you have the Chicago police, you have the Illinois State Police, uh, the SWAT teams, firefighters, hut, the hut, National hut, Guard. Hut, 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 hut. <laughs> like, that, was a, that was a gag that made me laugh. That was like a Mel Brooks-level gag to me, though. It like, was. That was like – like, it was, it was very funny to me. Um, the getting in, the barricading – the fact that the uh, the clerk that was on duty was Steven Spielberg. Spielberg. <laughs> uh, they they give him the money. The receipt is stamped. Literally ten seconds before the mob shows up, <laughs> and they are arrested. Presumably put away for a long time with the rest of the band. We close the movie on them performing. In the Illinois State Prison, as they play Jailhouse Rock and start a riot. <laughs> so good. You know, you mentioned Steven Spielberg early on uh, when Belushi gets out of prison and he has to go get his stuff, right? Like, that's in the envelope and his clothes and stuff. I can't believe I skipped it's this, yes. Frank Oz. And you'll know this. Trading Places also takes place in Chicago, right? Yes. So there's a scene in Trading Places where Dan Aykroyd gets arrested and has to turn over his possessions, and it's Frank Oz rattling off, Amazing. like, one Rolex watch. What, like, So I'm thinking it's like a Frank Oz, like it's a universe, and Frank Oz is the same character <laughs> in both so movies. So it's, it's funny you say that. Because the further connection from that is going from trading places to coming to America. Okay, which I've and seen that, a bunch. And that the 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 two stuffy old businessmen that lose the bet and get built yes. out of their fortune are bums in coming to America. And Prince Akeem fucking gives all of his American money away to these guys. And one looks, the other goes, Mortimer, we're, we're back. back. And I saw Coming <laughs> to America before I ever saw Trading Places. In fact, I only also just saw Trading Places like two months ago. But uh, that now makes, that now made sense. So it, it is, I guess, all part of this. Although they ended up in New York, not Chicago, right? Because I give, but yeah, it's the same like yeah. cinematic universe. But the Frank Oz thing struck me as funny because I had just seen Trading Places in like March. And I'm... It is a John Landis verse, is what it yeah. is. 
you know, if it was, if we might have seen more of a John Landis verse if he hadn't completely like done the most negligent thing in the history of motion pictures, which is a topic for another so day. So I was going <laughs> to ask you though, what was it about like how did John Landis come to direct so many like SNL adjacent features? Like how was he you know, the guy that did so many of these do you know so i think it had a lot to do with the fact of when he came in because he kind of did like you know b-level movies when b-level movies were kind of still a thing okay as far and i mean this is the pre-vhs era when there were like tears to movies and where they were released and stuff even as the studios were divesting themselves of their own chains of theaters but John Landis, I think, ended up with this gig because he had directed Animal House. Okay. And that is kind of the straight line that connects him to this movie. Okay. That makes sense then. So, um, yeah, he goes from there. He uh, He literally started at the bottom and worked his way up. From a gopher to being the assistant director on Kelly's Heroes. And just, uh, he, at 21, his first movie was Schlock, which is kind of, uh, which was also Rick Baker's start. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know who that is. In Hollywood movies. Yeah, yeah and um, actually, that ended up being his break because Johnny Carson was a fan of Schlock and invited him on the Tonight Show, promoted it, and he moved on to that. He directed the Kentucky Fried movie for the Zuckers, who went on Airplane, to make Airplane. Yeah. And it was because of that that it it was because of the Kentucky Fried movie and the connection back to the comedy scene in America and the timing. That's what got him Animal House and connected him to all the National Lampoon guys. Okay. And thus turned around and got him the gig for the Blues Brothers. And once he got the Blues Brothers, he was off to the races and he pretty much could do whatever he wants. I mean, he follows this up about 12 months later with the release of An American Werewolf in London. Okay. I didn't know that. I didn't know the timeline, but okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was just wondering because between this and coming to America and like, I know there are others, uh, Trading Places was Landis, wasn't it? Um, it's yes. like, it's either him or John Hughes. It seems like were the two guys that dealt with like Steve Martin, John Candy, uh, Eddie Murphy, like Planes, Trains and Automobiles almost could have been a John Landis movie. Like they have very similar Ferris Bueller almost seems mm -hmm. like it was a John Landis movie, but it's not like they're very, there are a lot of similarities to me to like Ferris Bueller and Blues Brothers, <laughs> like just like composition and things like that um oh what's funny is that i learned something from the documentary uh Aykroyd is the one that introduced john to blues music and Correct. it was belushi though that introduced Aykroyd to like composers and classical music and stuff like that and one of the examples he gave was Aykroyd had never heard of flight of the valkyries and wagner and they use Flight of the Valkyries in this when the Nazis are pursuing them in the chase. And I'm thinking that that was deliberate. 
It was deliberate. That's one of John's favorite songs of all time. It's one of his favorite musical pieces. There's a famous SNL sketch, which is essentially, which is called "Listening to Music" with John Belushi, <laughs> oh, I didn't where he sits in a suit in a study explaining Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries, and then once it hits the big bravura thematic elements, he starts trashing the set. Oh, that's like what that's... fucking destroying. Okay. Yeah, destroying the record player, destroying the wingback chair, just tearing the set apart like a madman. Okay, they they have a clip of that in the Belushi documentary, but you don't see... The, the point is they were talking about his frenetic energy and how he got the most yes. laughs when he was destroying things. So they were just doing like a super cut of all of his sketches where he was just destroying things. And that yeah. was one of them, but the context... I, I didn't know the sketch because I've never seen like those early seasons. It it was amazing, and it was one of his it, it it's one of his finest moments in the history of the show, in my opinion. But yes, it it does not surprise me that he loved Wagner, and yes, that, that he is totally the reason why Rod of the Valkyries was in this movie. You know, including incidental music by Sam and Dave and John Lee Hooker and just so many others. Uh, but yeah, um, I I did meet John Landis and conflicted feelings. Twilight Zone related feelings aside, I made a point to thank him for making the Blues Brothers. That's fair. I mean, I I don't know where I stay. Like, you know, I don't watch Woody Allen movies anymore. That's just a choice I've made. I don't watch Polanski movies, but like I'll watch John Landis ones. Like, but by all accounts, he was negligent on set and the deaths were his fault. So it's like, ooh, but. Believe me. <laughs> Believe me, there. So, we, you and anyway. I will have a whole episode about that where we land up, where we land next. <laughs> I promise you that, listeners. Once you know more about what, where we're headed and what we're doing, that'll make a lot more sense later on. But you won't have to wait long. But no, put a pin in that topic because that is a whole meal yeah, in and of that's, itself. Yeah, that's neither here nor there at the moment. But like, it's... the point of this, as we finish up, is that. This is this weird amalgamation. In my opinion, this is neck and neck with Singing in the Rain for the greatest American musical of all time. Oh, my, Jack, that's my favorite movie of all time. So, <laughs> I, I think really highly of this movie. There's nothing quite like it um, because it is so many different things and it had such a cultural impact in so many ways coming out of this. It launched a worldwide live venue and restaurant. Um, it, you know, forever made people know the names of Aykroyd and Belushi. It revived the careers of James Brown, Aretha Franklin, John Lee Hooker, um, Cab Calloway (laughs) and, uh, Ray Charles. It's just, it's impossible to understate the impact of this movie. Oh, my mind just went blank. I was going to say something, and now it just totally went blank when you were t- – oh, when you about musicals, sorry. You know, I was watching this movie. I'm not a huge – like, I am a bit of a Broadway snob. Like, I'm not a cinephile snob by any means, right? But, like, mm-hmm. I think some Broadway musicals are, like, not really Broadway musicals. Like, that's not what Broadway is, right? But – I am shocked. Like, I'm not into turning movies into musicals necessarily. Like, there's The Bodyguard, the musical, and there's Dirty Dancing, the musical, and it's like, eh, you know. But <laughs> for me, like, but hey, if it gets people into live theater, then hopefully that means they get to see something else, right? Like, as much as I don't like Rent, 
for everyone that brought, you know, went, went into a theater to see Rent, hopefully they left and wanted to see more Broadway, right? So hopefully a teenage girl seeing Mean Girls on Broadway is, is going to open a gateway for them and they're going to want to see more musical theater or partake in musical theater or whatever. But I'm not, a, I'm not the biggest fan of like biopics or something on Broadway and, and, and adaptations on Broadway. I am shocked that this has never been optioned or done in a Broadway musical. And honestly, I would go like, this is one of the few where I would be like, this would be a blast on stage because the choreography is already, it's already professional stage dancers were like in it. You know what I mean? So it's like the choreography would be amazing. The harmonizing would be amazing. Like how has this never reached a stage adaptation? Cause it's like, it seems like guaranteed money. It does, but, how how do you whittle this down? Because th that's the thing. The the person that's going to whittle this down is Dan Aykroyd. And uh, as as we kind of wrap this up, uh, a, a very nice Aykroyd story. I have only been to the new Beverly Cinema one time. And that is due to an incredibly busy Saturday night schedule for years. Yep. Which now is no longer an issue. But the first chance I had to go, uh, the new Bev which is at that time and still is under the ownership of Quentin Tarantino, mm -hmm. uh, was programmed to have Dan Aykroyd month. And they showed a 35-millimeter print of the Blues Brothers. So we showed up, and we got two surprises. Not only were we surprised with the presence of Quentin himself to introduce the movie, one of his favorites, nice. We were then surprised with a full gospel-style introduction to the one and only Dan Aykroyd, oh who suddenly enters the theater. Who, by the way, he and his wife, Donna Dixon, you know, famed Playmate of the Year, Donna Dixon, they're still married, y'all, stayed and watched the entire movie with oh, us. Oh, that's so awesome! Yes, Dan Aykroyd fucking rules, everybody. Never forget. <laughs> I know I know a couple of friends in Atlanta ended up meeting him because he was in town. He might have been shooting something, but he has his vodka company. Mm. And so he was like, which is very successful. He was like at one of the bars pouring or promoting or something like that. And again, like he might have been in town filming also. But then like at night, he went down one of the most popular bars, like street of bars in Virginia Highlands in Atlanta and like was was slinging drinks or promoting his vodka or whatever and I had some friends who ended up meeting him and they said they said he was nice and and personable and wasn't a total like I'm working I'm busy like Canadian. yeah <laughs> so I've, I've heard I've heard good things I've heard nice things about him um but that's 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 exciting like that's so awesome but it, this whole thing made me appreciate Belushi like as as final thoughts go or whatever as we wrap this up like I had no, I had seen Animal House during my Hollywood video days, right? Because it's just one of those movies that you have to see, you know? But Absolutely. basically, it's like, I was born just after Belushi, he was like 83 that he passed away? I believe that's correct. So, I was born in 85, so like, I was born after he died. Basically, my parents were like, oh yeah, he was a, he was a drug addict and he died of an overdose. So sad. And like, that was sort of... That was sort of it. <laughs> like, that was sort of yeah. what they said about Belushi and, and you know, uh, 
I never saw anything other than Animal House when I was, you know, 20 or whatever. And I rented it. I think that's the only Belushi movie I had ever seen until Blues Brothers. And so, you know, we're we're the Chris Farley era, right? So we are, but he's so directly influenced by Belushi. Right. So it's so it's And doing this project has really highlighted that amongst other things about him because yes, I would agree with you 100%. That has been one of the biggest takeaways from the entire Dawn of SNL miniseries is how fucking good John Belushi was. And how like absolutely. Like I have an absence for a person that I never shared it shared the earth with. Like, mm. I, you know, like, John Candy, sure, I was little, but, like, his death, I loved Home Alone, I loved Uncle Buck, I loved Cool Runnings, like, his death as a, you know, 10 or 11-year-old or whatever, because they're about the same age, like, was processed differently, because I'm 10 or 11, so it was just, like, I didn't understand, like, he he died, like, but that was sort of the extent of it, but, like, I don't have, I've never had an affinity or a, like, whatever for Belushi, you know, I actually liked I actually like Jim Belushi. Like I actually watched his sitcom and like, I always felt kind of, kind of bad for Jim because I feel like there was this unfair expectation put upon him to be as good as his brother, you know? And like, I don't think that's, that's fair. And now he's happy and he, he grows weed. Good for him. He's, he's like America's grandpa on Twitter. Uh, so like he's great i follow him on twitter and he's like the happiest nicest guy so good for you jim but like yeah i have this newfound appreciation for belushi i want to watch continental divide which i didn't even know like was a yes. was a movie at all i would love to rewatch neighbors. animal house neighbors i'm just intrigued by it did look terrible the documentary touched on that and like how it also wasn't what belushi wanted it to be um, I didn't know it was Abelson or Abelson who did First Blood, directed Neighbors. And the first Rocky. Yeah. I didn't know it was him, but basically he wanted more cartoony and it was supposed to be more like black comedy. And Belushi at night was also like kind of in and out of consciousness and was like, so it was another one of those disasters. But um, I, I definitely like having newfound respect and just a sadness for this person. Cause he, there's even interview clips in this thing where he's like, no one, he's like very few people actually like, he's like, everyone knows who I am, but no one knows who I am. And it's like, that's just like, it's, it's heartbreaking. And you could see it's, it's maddening too. Now knowing what we know about addiction too. Um, it yeah, wasn't a disease we, back you then. And I it's have... so maddening to see these people around him and it just it's so sad and angering. You and I have outlived him by three years at this point. I know. I forget that he was thirty three. The guy looked forty three. Like Yeah, he was did rough. not look good no. near the end. But it was it just Um Don't do drugs, oh, kids. Don't do drugs. It was just so sad to see him to see video and photos of him just like spiraling out of control and like psychiatry was not, was like new. That was like a novelty thing. And like, he didn't want to go to rehab and like, it just, ugh, it was just so sad. It was just so sad that like he didn't have the help. Like Carrie was the only one who knew what he would, was going through. Cause she also, you know, obviously was an addict, but like, she's not his keeper, you know, and they did that one movie together, but she's like that one year that he was clean and sober. She said, must've been excruciating for him. 
because yeah. you can't just do that as an addict. Like, yep. And people handle it different ways. He, he relapsed and she wrote postcards from the edge. So it's, uh, you know, addiction is a beast. It is something that Lemmy and I have talked about in just about every episode up to this point, and the theme continues, is we miss John Belushi, and we feel cheated for not having him around. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think I think there's really no better way we can end this, because this is the culmination of his work. This is... I. This is the best thing he's ever done. I think this is still the best thing Dan Aykroyd's ever done. And considering he went on and did Ghostbusters too, I know that's some pretty that's that's a pretty big thing to put out there in the universe. But God damn it, I stand by it. I know, man. It's I always forgot that Belushi was supposed to be involved in Ghostbusters. He was supposed to be the uh, he was supposed to be the Bill Murray role. And never mind that if he had lived, it would have been an entirely different movie. It would have been, and maybe it we wouldn't have cared about, you know, maybe it wouldn't have become the cult classic that it is. But like, that was one of the last things that Ackroyd had said to him was like, Belushi was reeling because he wrote a script with a guy. It was called something rot. I'm totally blanking on what it is. Um, but the studio like didn't want it like, and then neighbors got such negative, you know, reviews and was panned. And he just started like, spiraling that he like wasn't enough for everybody and that he thought his marriage was over and things like that. And like Ackroyd said that, Hey, you just gotta, it's going to be all right. You just got to hang on. I'm writing a script that's going to turn everything around. And it was Ghostbusters. And my jaw dropped because I always forget that Belushi was supposed to be in Ghostbusters and that that was the script that Ackroyd was writing. Um, And so it's just, it's just tragic all, all the way around. It's so sad. It, it really is. Um, so yeah, not, not to end it on a downer note, but please go watch this movie. Uh, smile, laugh, tap your feet, dance. Um, again, one of my all time favorite movies. I am incredibly lucky and blessed that you joined me to talk about this. I'm so glad that I was the impetus for you watching this for the first time. I take, an immense amount of joy in that. I honestly would not, I still probably would not have seen it if it, if it weren't for you. Like I really only just kind of watched it because I trust your opinion. And like, we talk about movies all the time and you were like, no, seriously, like, please watch this movie. And I was like, okay. Like you said, please, like, this is important to you. Like I, I need, it'll finally give me a reason to watch it. And I am so glad i've watched it twice in like six or seven weeks and i never do that with movies because i've got i don't have a lot of time to watch you know despite watching movies for a living i don't have time to watch movies so like to spend another two hours and 18 minutes watching a movie i just saw um and enjoyed just as much the second time and noticed more things and things like that like i'm very very excited now to be a member of the blues brothers club and uh celebrate the life of John Belushi. If you don't want to end it on a negative note, seek you're, out all these movies and celebrate and spread the word. <laughs> your your sunglasses and fedora are in the mail. Sweet. I'm excited. <laughs> so let them know where they can find you. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. Um, my handle is that movie is fine. Um, 
<laughs> my motto is, you know that movie you love? I probably think it's fine. Uh, <laughs> but I have to say, I gave Blues Brothers five stars. Like, it is a perfect, they say the perfect movie doesn't exist. I think it might be the Blues Brothers. Like, I gave it five stars. I told you that when it was over, too, and I was not expecting that. And I'm I'm, I'm a very lenient critic, but I don't hand out, like, four and a half and five stars. Very the fact that it went it went past the normal top end of it's more, it's than, more fine, than fine all the way to five stars <laughs> is like I I want to put that on my I want to put this on my highlight reel. <laughs> oh, That's, I'm on I'm so happy. I'm on Instagram. I always forget that one. Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. You can find me at that movie is fine. <laughs> the best, the best. Um, I. Dear friends, am back on the road. Uh, I can't wait to talk to you about that really soon. I Last week, I worked my first show since January of 2020, fully vaxxed. So happy to be out amongst you. I plan on doing it more. Please follow me on Twitter at Jack Heartless and on Instagram at Captain Jack Heartless for photos from that stuff and more info about when I will be coming to your city. It's real. It's happening. We are back on track but until that comes we will see you in two weeks for the fifth and final season of the original cast of saturday night live so until then for lauren knight this is captain jack heartless saying thank you very much and keep sailing